Our passage today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is a poem by a Lebanese-born poet and artist named Khalil Gibran. It's called The Wise King. I'm not going to read it to you, but in this poem, it sort of reads like a parable. He tells the story of a wise king in a distant land who was loved by his people for his great wisdom. In the center of the city where he was king, there was a well. It had good, cool water, and all the people drank from it because it was the only well in the city. One night, a witch came and poisoned the well and basically said, anyone who drinks from this well from now on is going to go crazy. The next day, all the people in this city drank from the well except for the king and his closest advisor. Just like the witch said, they ended up losing their minds and thinking differently. And the people who, who have now all, as a population, had their minds changed by the poisoned well, they all walked around and now said to each other, the king is mad. He's lost his reason. Surely we cannot be ruled by a mad king. We need to dethrone him. See, the king and his advisor were the only two people who did not have their minds poisoned by drinking from the well, but the rest of the population, who are all now on the same page, they think that the king has lost the plot. Truly, the king and his advisor were the only ones who were not poisoned, but the population thinks the king and his advisor have lost their wisdom and reason. And hearing that the people wanted to dethrone him, the poem concludes like this, and I want to read it to you. That evening, the king ordered a golden goblet to be filled from the well. And when it was brought to him, he drank deeply and gave it to his Lord Chamberlain to drink. And there was great rejoicing in that distant city of Warani because its king and its Lord Chamberlain had regained their reason. See, I would imagine that many of us feel pressure similar to the wise king and his advisor, his Lord. And I think we feel this pressure on a regular basis. You look at what's happening in the world around us, in the city around us, and you think, my goodness, is the whole world gone mad? But if you want to be accepted by your coworkers, and you want to be accepted by your friends or your fellow students, if you want to be accepted by the gatekeepers of culture, if you want to keep your place on the throne, so to speak, you might feel pressure to drink from their well too. You might stand there like the king and say to yourself, if I want to keep my place here in this social climate, even if I think it's wrong, I might need to fill my cup from the well of worldliness and I might need to compromise a bit. And that's what John's talking about in our text today. There's a temptation for all of us to bend our beliefs to accommodate the worldly thinking of others in this cultural moment rather than to stand out as different as God's people, as people who seek to do the will of God no matter the cost. And John calls that temptation loving the world. 
John is writing this passage as a warning against the temptation to follow the pattern of the world and not the will of God. John is going to show us that if we love God and the love of the Father is in us, that we cannot also love the world. We're going to look at it under three points today. I want us to look at the warning against worldliness, our way of being in the world, and countercultural obedience. It's a warning against worldliness. It's our way of being in the world. And it's speaking about our countercultural obedience. So, first, warning against worldliness. Look at the text again with me, verses 15 and 16 in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So first, what is the warning and who is it for? Very important. I think it's really important to get this correct right off the bat. John's warning is for the members of the church who are walking in the truth of the gospel. Listen, this is 90-year-old Pastor John writing to the people he deeply loves. He's been there and he's done that and he wants to see the people he deeply loves flourish in their faithfulness to Jesus instead of being warped by worldly desires. This is his hope for them. So he warns them. And I want to be clear, this is a pastoral warning for the church. But he's warning them of an attitude or a posture that can derail their life and shipwreck their faith. Namely, it's a warning not to love the world or the things in the world. Now, he's not talking about the world like the lakes and the trees and the mountains and the ocean and the stars and the beach. He's talking about the world here as a whole system of humanity that is in rebellion against God. Karen Jobes said, John uses the word world to refer not to the natural creation, nor to human beings as human beings, but to the whole way of life resulting from the fall of humanity under the power of evil, whether organized into social institutions and power structures or practiced by individuals. Okay? And John says, again, in verse 15, look at this, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, this is a straight up comparison and contrast. It's binary. It's this or it's that. It's nothing in between. It's the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. It's love for the world or the love of the Father. But you don't get to have it both ways. It's like two different operating systems. They don't mesh. It's the way of God or the way of the world. But here's the thing for Christians that John is writing to, okay? Because this is the tension of our life. On one hand, we know that we are separated from the world in the sense that the world has no claim on us. We've been brought into relationship with God through the work of Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have experienced the new life we have in him. We no longer stand under judgment because our sin was judged upon the cross when Jesus died in our place. We have moved from death into life. 
We've repented of sin. We've anchored our hope in the work of Christ. We don't love the world, but we are filled with the love of the Father. But here's the tension and here's the warning. We're still in the world. We're still exposed to the temptations of the world. We still battle the desires of the flesh. And we can still be pulled toward being warped by those worldly desires. And hear me, because in John's gospel, and in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the letters that he wrote to the church, John sets the world and Jesus' kingdom in contrast. There's kingdom culture, which is full of the love of God and the new life that we have in Christ, where we're full of the Holy Spirit. And then there's worldly culture. It's in opposition to God and under the power of Satan. This is the battle and this is the temptation that John is warning the church about. I I love how C.S. Lewis said this. He said there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. John said if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the warning against worldliness. It's the warning against worldliness. Pay attention to the object of your affections. But secondly, our way of being in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, you've got to see this as two opposing ways of being. On one hand, you've got a worldly system that opposes God. And on the other hand, you have a redemption in Christ that transforms you. And hear me, they are mutually exclusive. You know which way of being you're in. And this is, this is the key. You know which way of being you are in by what you love. John is not the only New Testament author to talk about this. It's all over the Bible. In a passage warning the church against the same kind of worldliness that John is warning us about, James writes this, James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's taking what John is saying, and I think even saying a little bit stronger. It's the exact same thing as John's warning. John's pastoral warning is so that we can guard our hearts. You can't walk with the Father and dwell in the love of the Father and think you can keep drinking from the poisoned well of worldliness and that somehow you're going to flourish. Drinking from the wrong well will poison you. It might get you acceptance in the world that all around you is at odds with God and the way of the kingdom, but it will shipwreck your faith. Again, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says, for all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know, some of you are from Vancouver and some of us are from small towns in Alberta. That's where I'm from, small towns in Alberta that are currently cold enough to kill you. That's not what he's talking about. It's not what John means. 
He's not talking about the place of our origin. He's talking about being, uh, when, when, when he talks about being from the world or from the Father, he's talking about two separate ways of being. He's talking about the source or the wellspring of your life. And I already said this, you know which way of being you are living in by what you love. That's the warning he gives us. It's, it's against living in the kingdom of Jesus, but still pursuing worldly desires. That's the warning for us. Christ City, that's the warning to hear. When I was 15 years old, I, I worked pumping gas at a gas station, and the owner of the gas station was very clear when he was training us that we needed to be very careful about something because we pumped both gasoline and diesel. He was very clear that if you had a diesel vehicle pull up, you needed to put diesel in the tank of the engine that ran on diesel and gasoline in the tank of the engine that ran on gasoline and that it would not work well if you crossed those up. There are two ways of being in the world. One is from the world in the sense that John means it and one is from the Father and you need to make sure that you don't cross those over. Verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. When we're operating in the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it's like we're running gas in our diesel engine. It's not the way it was supposed to be. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, these are the horror stories that run all through the Bible, starting with the origin of sin in humanity and rebellion against God. It starts in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Right? It was good for food. It was, it was a delight to the eyes. It was to be desired to make one wise. It was good for food. It was something about she wanted that. She was told not to have it, but she took it. She wanted it. It was a delight to the eyes. There was beauty all around her, but she was captivated by the beauty of something she was told not to touch. She desired it because she saw that it could make her wise. It's not like she lacked any ability to understand the wisdom of God. She walked with him in the cool of the day. She wanted the wisdom. She wanted it apart from God. She wanted it on her own terms. She was being guided by what she wants. She's being guided by her desires. This is literally the origin of the problem of worldliness. She was being guided by her desires that were contrary to the will of God. From this point on, all of human history is now warped by worldly desires. We see it in the book of Judges. If you've read the book of Judges lately, we're not there yet in our Christ City reading plan for the year. The book of Judges is basically a downward spiral into chaos. The whole book is a horrific picture of what happens when God's people are warped by a worldly desire to do things on their own terms. It ends with this really scary line that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's literally what from the world means. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It's the view of life in rebellion against God. We, we see this in the book of Joshua. There's a story of a man named Achan. 
Achan saw some silver and some gold that was supposed to be dedicated to God and dedicated to destruction, but Achan saw it and he wanted it. It literally says he coveted it. And he took the silver and he took the gold and he buried it in his tent. This angered the Lord. The desire of his eyes overtook the love and faithfulness he had to God and he sinned. And he he and his, his whole family were judged for what he did and put to death. The desires of the eyes. There's a king in the Old Testament named David. David saw at one point a woman that he wanted. Even though she was married, he took her. He imposed himself upon her. And when he was caught, he had her husband killed to try and cover up the sin. It's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. God judged him for this, and the child that he conceived with her died. It's not from the Father. This is from the world. In Adam and Eve's sin, and in Achan's sin, and in David's sin, all of it incompatible with the way of being as God's people, all of their warped worldly desire ended up affecting not just them, but the entire community around them. And that's not to mention pride of life, which we see in this text. In verse 16, it says pride of life. That's a pursuit of success and material wealth where the person becomes proud and boastful of all that they've accomplished in their success. The pride of life is boasting in these accomplishments and success and status and the image that comes with it and all that you've acquired materially in this world. It's boasting in it that leads to a denial of your need for God. Christ City, you live in Vancouver. This is a problem for us. We have so much The pride of life says, I am sufficient in and of myself and I don't really need to depend on God. You know, one of the things that I celebrate about the pandemic, don't hate me for saying that, I celebrate our increased dependency on God, functionally, where we're functionally dependent upon God. Pride of life is so vicious to our soul because it's from the world, it's not from the Father. You know, Paul talks about this in Colossians. He gives us another framework of understanding our way of being in the world. He says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, worldly things, right? Verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will uh, you also will appear with him in glory listen verse 5 he says put to death therefore what is earthly in you that is what is worldly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry i told you this is all over the bible this is just another framework of thinking about that which is from the world and that which is from the father the good news is the bible also goes on in the same passage later in the same passage to tell us what it looks like not just to put off those worldly things, but how to put on that which comes from the Father. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, put on, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Christ City, this is from the Father. This is our way of being in the world. We have a way of being in the world where we can flourish and thrive in God's kingdom. But be warned that the temptation to worldliness will come. That's what John is saying. There are people all around us who are living lives that are contrary to God. And sometimes it looks like a good way of being. There's a reason that this is tempting to us. But you cannot walk with the Father and dwell in the love of the Father and think that you can keep drinking from the poisoned well of worldliness and that somehow you're going to flourish. Drinking from the wrong well will poison you. It might gain acceptance for you. It might gain you acceptance from your coworkers, your friends, your classmates, the gatekeepers of culture. But ultimately, those worldly desires will not fuel your kingdom life and worldly desires will not quench your thirst for what you know is good and right. You will drink of that well and it will poison you and you will not be satisfied. This is John's warning to his people, the church. Okay, here's why. Here's why. We looked at the warning against worldliness. We looked at our way of being in the world. But third, our countercultural obedience. Let's look at this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a contrast being made here about the nature of the world, which will pass away. The world and all that is in rebellion against God will pass away. And the eternality of our life with God Whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a temporal change here. And you don't want to build your life on something temporal when you've been offered something eternal. It might sound counterintuitive, I know, but radical countercultural obedience to the will of God will lead you to flourishing in your life. You're not alone. You are not alone in the temptation. You are not alone in the shame. You are not alone in the frustration. You are not alone in thinking that maybe if you just offer a little bit and just take a cup of worldliness, that maybe people will really love you. I'm telling you, that's a lie. It's a lie. The love of the Father is not in those who want you to compromise. It's counterintuitive, but radical countercultural obedience will lead to your flourishing in Christ. And how do we do this? Where does the power for this come from? Well, the wise king in Gibran's poem saw that the whole world around him went crazy overnight. But he took the easy way out and he drank from the poisoned well in order to be accepted and to keep his place on the throne. This is the easy way out. It's compromise. 
Countercultural obedience to the will of God looks different because we have a different kind of king. We don't have a king who tried to apply a worldly means of doing what he was called to do. We have a king who has always deeply abided in the love of the Father. And for him, radical obedience meant the way of the cross. We serve the king who knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane and who said, my, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. It's radical obedience. We serve the king who did not dip his cup into the poisoned well of worldliness, but the king who drank the cup of judgment that we deserved. Jesus' obedience is the power for our obedience. Jesus' death on the cross makes a way for our new way of being in the world. Christ City, this is the good news of the gospel. Be warned about the temptation to worldliness. Understand the new way of being that will lead to a flourishing life. And understand that it demands radical obedience, countercultural obedience, but that this is the way to true life. If you're gathered with your house church, it's time to prepare the elements for communion. We prepare the bread and the wine each week because this points us to the work of Christ in our place. It shows us that the way to true life, that true life himself gave his life in our place. It shows us that the way of radical obedience is the way to flourishing life. It shows us that sin has consequences. And if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you can trust that as you take the bread and the wine today, that you are celebrating the reality that Christ's body was broken on the cross in your place and for your sin, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and you take the elements as he told us to. He said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. When we do this in remembrance of him, we are participating in something where God, by the Holy Spirit, reminds us, empowers us, and reveals to us God's love. To dwell in the love of the Father is to come to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus is the way to God's heart. For God so loved the world that was in sinful rebellion against him that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And so for every one of us who believe, we're going to celebrate communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're intrigued by what we're talking about here, can I tell you something? Communion's not for you yet. The first step is to yield your will to God's, just like Jesus did. You need to come to Jesus and receive what he did for you by faith. The whole thing is an act of grace. You've done nothing to deserve it, so don't worry about feeling like you're undeserving. We all are. That's grace. When you come to Jesus when you put your hope and trust in him, when you repent of your sin, which means you turn away from that worldliness that you're tempted to pursue and you begin to follow Jesus, you turn and follow him. See, the Bible says that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.
This is what I'm talking about. God has made a way for us to spend eternity with him, and I don't want to be there without you. Maybe today is the day where you repent of your sin and you celebrate communion for the first time with a group of people. If you want someone to talk to about this, send me an email, brett at christcitychurch.ca. It would be my greatest joy and the highlight of my month to chat with you about how you can come to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I ask you that you would do a big work in our hearts. For I know, the Lord, that we, we need to be strengthened in our resolve to serve you. We need to be strengthened in our desire, Lord, to, to have our desires reoriented toward you, Father. We, we need help with that, though. And so I pray by your Spirit right now that you would strengthen every single one of us who are hearing this, who are hearing this prayed for them. Lord, I pray this for me. Strengthen me in my resolve to serve you, to turn away from worldliness, to live out of the new way of being that you have offered me, that I would be counterculturally obedient to your commands and thereby have life. Man, I pray this for our whole church. God, I ask you that you would bless and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.